If you're innovating, creating, or making a difference, this show is for you. Welcome to Over Coffee. I'm Dot Cannon. Here on Over Coffee, we talk with artists and innovators about the process of changing the world in terms of what they do. For me, the biggest successes are seeing the children realize that the things that they're doing are going to be like something that's beneficial for people or are going to make their lives better that day. And I think that's kind of like my whole idea behind this idea of design for good in the classroom is really about. Artist, designer, and arts educator Travis Sevilla starts by thinking outside the box and then takes the process a whole lot further in an innovative program called Design for Good in the Classroom. Students are working in a curriculum which combines art and science to solve real-world problems and benefit nonprofits and communities. In addition to teaching, Travis also works as a freelance designer in both film and graphic arts. Travis, how did you first know that art was what you wanted to make your life's work? I think for me, I've been doing art since I can remember. I think the first thing I remember ever doing was a coloring in a chicken and you know making one leg silver and like deciding that that was like really important to me to make it silver and it just kind of went from there it was something i always kind of had a passion for and an interest in and then much later in my mid-20s i ended up ultimately going to art school and then kind of sky's the limit from there just kind of all downhill i guess and, and kept going how did the steam element come in we we're designing cool stuff you're using engineering math technology how did that start for you well so the last 10 years now, I've been teaching in two different public high schools. One was a charter school called High Tech High, and then currently I teach at a school called Canyon Crest Academy. And in my role at High Tech High, I got hired originally as an art teacher, but because of the sort of project-based nature of the course, we collaborate a lot with interdisciplinary you know, other teachers to create kind of long-term projects that had real-world consequences and meaning for the students out, you know, out there, outside of their school environment. And so because of that, you know, I've always had kind of a bit of a passion for science as well. My wife's actually a chemistry teacher. And so it just kind of snowballed to where my classroom kind of morphed into this more of a design studio where we were finding ways to kind of solve relevant problems in the world. And sometimes that wasn't always with a visual component. Sometimes that was by making a thing or designing a thing or, you know, those kinds of activities. So, so it sort of morphed into this sort of STEAM-based course. And then that led me to getting hired at Canyon Crest Academy to teach their digital art and design classes and so in those classes we really focused on learning the technical skills of Adobe Photoshop and Illustrator and things like that but we're really looking to to get the kids thinking about having real-world skills that they can apply and so as part of that class it became a career technical education class as well and so because of that I was able to kind of go to these team conferences and I work with other teachers in other disciplines all the time so I'm always looking at kind of how that intersection of art and science meet just because it's interesting to me. So that's kind of how that originally started. It kind of shifted from one school to the next and then it's kind of morphed even more now. So. What's one of the coolest projects you've had the opportunity to do with your students this past year at Canyon Crest Academy based on a real world problem? I think this year one of the coolest ones we're doing right now is we're doing a project with the San Dieguito River Valley Conservancy and they're a nonprofit group that protects and educates around watershed issues in San Diego, and particularly the watershed that our school actually happens to be on. And so last year we were able to work with them designing patches for their uniforms, but also for anybody who completes their Coast to Crest Challenge, which is a series of five hikes that string together the entire watershed. And 
they enjoyed our work so much that this year they asked us back. And so we're working on that again this year, which I think is a really cool opportunity for the students. And in part of doing the project, it's not just designing the patch, they actually have to learn all about the watershed, the science, and all the stuff that's kind of going into it to inform their designs. So that's kind of a really fun, kind of meaningful project. And then in the past, we've done kind of several others. One of my most favorite projects we did was my first year at Canyon Crest Academy. We worked with a woman in Brazil ahead of the 2016 Olympics, and we actually designed animations to help bring awareness to the pollution in Guanabara Bay. So we were doing Skype calls with Brazil every Friday with my students and kind of creating for, you know, not only an outside client, but also a completely different culture and language, which was really challenging and interesting to do too. With either one of these projects, what was one of your most challenging moments and what was one of your most triumphant moments as a teacher and an artist? I think the challenges are always there. They're ubiquitous, so I think there's never not a challenge, whether it's a logistical challenge, a timeline challenge, uh, infrastructure challenge, you know, with regards to not having the resources or, or the classroom space isn't designed well or we don't have enough time or all those things. I think the hardest challenge with, say, something like the Brazil project was the language barrier, because the person from Brazil spoke you know, decent English, but it was tough, and vice versa for my kids don't speak Portuguese, at least not at the time. So that was a real challenge, and also the having the remote nature of that project, having me so far away, it was very difficult to kind of like really understand what the client needs, and so like I think that was a, a tough one. But in terms of successes, I think for me the biggest successes are seeing the children, you know, realize that the things that they're doing actually matter in the world and are going to be like something that's beneficial for people or are going to make their lives better that day or whatever it is and I think that's kind of like my whole idea behind this idea of design for good in the classroom is really about that like getting kids to kind of see that they can use those skills they learn and apply them in ways that are positive and they can work with companies that are doing cool things or nonprofits or, or whatever that they don't have to just you know do design for anybody who asks just because there's a paycheck. So I think those are like my biggest successes is seeing the kids kind of realize that and see that they have a lot of potential in this stuff. What if an educator is listening right now, teacher, high school, principal, anybody who would love to start doing projects similar to yours but don't quite know where to begin? How do we implement something of this nature? Yeah, I think first and foremost, if you're an administrator, it's finding the right people. And so if you don't have somebody on your staff that can do that, it's looking for somebody who has some of those skill sets and it's won't always be the most obvious thing. The technical aspect is important, but it's not necessarily the end all be all. So it's finding people that, you know, I think all teachers love kids and want kids to be successful, but really finding those teachers that are highly flexible and adaptable, because I think that's a skill that's much needed today. So I think that's like a big one. Once you have it, then it's a matter of kind of designing your school space or your schedule or all the things that sort of dictate how a class might run and kind of trying to remove obstacles as much as possible, I think, as a job for an administrator. And even as a teacher, you know, your job is to design the learning experience for your students. And so it's like the best way is to kind of remove as many obstacles as possible for them to kind of do what they need to do. So a little bit of getting out of your own way, you know, just kind of setting up situations where the kids have these projects ahead of them, being good at finding the information you needed to help them or having that information yourself and those skill sets and then kind of just project managing and letting the kids do the work and letting them kind of take it where they think it needs to go. I think that's a big one. And then working as hard as you can to make as many community connections as possible. So working in your community and that could be your immediate community in the school, you know, because schools always need stuff, but also outside the school. So, you know, all the parents that maybe have 
cool companies that need help or whatever it is, or maybe they work for a nonprofit and looking for those things kind of in the local community and then expanding from there, whether it's international or national projects. What would be some favorite resources? Let's say that people are just starting to look in their community. What can I do? What would you recommend to them as far as reaching out? Maybe some companies want to work with them. Maybe some nonprofits really need their help. Yeah, I think... One, I've done a lot of cold calling and cold emailing of local nonprofits. So that's one thing. The company Patagonia actually has a really great website called their Patagonia Action Works. And you can type in your zip code and then it will find for you all the local nonprofits and environmental agencies that are doing work in your area. And it has lists of the things that they might need. So it might be that your local nonprofit needs a threefold brochure for an event that they're doing or something like that. And maybe they can't afford to pay somebody. Those are really great opportunities to see if it's something that they're willing to let your students tackle. And so that to me is a really great resource because you can find a lot of different organizations that need help, whether that's graphic design or they need volunteers or whatever it is. So depending if your program is not necessarily graphically oriented, maybe there's something else you can do. Maybe it's you're going to go out and water quality test if you're a science class or whatever it is. These organizations need that help. And so that's a great resource. That's one of the big ones I use. I had not heard of that one before. That sounds fantastic. You wowed me with a video you had on your website of students who had done, I think it was an Adobe challenge with restoring photographs for the victims of Hurricane Harvey. That really blew me away. Oh, yeah, that's actually not even mine. That was a, a more of an inspiration piece. That was a school in Texas that did that. But I used that as an example of the type of work that kids can do. I wish I could take credit for that. That was a great project. But that's the type of stuff that I want students to see is possible, that they can take this skill set. And it's not just about making money, but you can actually look for opportunities to kind of find ways to help people in a positive way through design or through photography or Photoshop or Illustrator and all these things. Yeah, that program, Adobe has that video and I use it on my website to show the students what's possible there. So I love that. That's a great project. That's exciting to me because I've lived long enough to remember when art was here, science was there, and people said, oh, good luck getting a job. You're an artist. That has changed a lot. How do you see art education changing in the next five to 10 years? Well, if, if all goes well and people realize how important it is and they continue to fund it, you know, the state we're in right now, California, it does not fund arts that great, although we are kind of the hub of the art sort of creative economy. So it's kind of ironic that we, we don't spend a lot per student on art. But I hope that people see the intersection of art and science and technology and how the skill sets in the creative economy are everywhere and that you know every industry needs these people even scientists that think like artists sometimes make you know more interesting breakthroughs and things like that so and vice versa you know artists that can use sort of an analytical approach sometimes have really amazing insights for their art so i think it's just getting people to again remove barriers in this case those barriers of the division of subject matters thinking like well this is this and that's that and you can't intermix I think that's going away slowly but surely. You know, with newer, younger teachers coming into the fold every year, you get new energy and you get people that are used to that kind of environment. So yeah, I think that's, I'm like pretty optimistic, just given the fact that there's so many careers out there now that are visual or communication arts based or some intersection of some combination of those things out there. So it's a, it's pretty cool. What could people do to take that one step further? We don't have as much funding as we should. We don't have half as much funding as we should in California right now. How can people best support teachers like you who are doing this and making a difference? I think, you know, if you own a business or you work for a nonprofit, it's like, you know, reaching out to the schools in your local community to see if there's something that you can collaborate with them on 
a lot of the schools were here at a CTE career technical education conference right now and a lot of schools have those programs and they're always looking for opportunities so I think I think if you're just an individual and you have access to those things or maybe you work for a company that could potentially you know benefit from collaborating with a school finding ways to do that I think would be a big one and then I think you know looking to see you know whether it's politics or whatever but where you can make an impact with your vote and see if you can find people that are willing to kind of put their money where their mouth is when it comes to schools and yeah that would be without getting too political I guess that would be the way I'd say what would you really love to be doing what's next for you as you continue teaching your students to make a difference through art and science and technology I think as an educator I'm the kind of person that I love teaching I've been doing it a long time and I I love it because it's exciting for me and I get to problem solve new and interesting things every semester and every week because we're trying to constantly change our projects. I think if it got stagnant, I'd probably not do it. But as far as that, I like to, I want to kind of expand more into the realm of helping other teachers find ways to kind of make this stuff or the things that I'm doing or things that are being done similarly in other schools more attainable and just kind of get people to think a little bit more outside the box or to kind of operate within the structures that they're limited in if their school site maybe doesn't have the flexibility of this that and the other thing or maybe they teach APs and they've got a small window to do cool things but to get them to really start thinking about using that time and finding those fissures those little cracks in the system that they can kind of interject you know some some really fun cool exciting things for their kids so I would like to see more of that happen if I could kind of help facilitate that in any way then that's kind of something I'd be interested in if teachers would like to get a hold of you or find out where you'll be teaching, because the way that you and I met was you were teaching this great Design for Good session at Cal Steam, how do they get in touch with you? They can go to my teaching website, which is just Travis Sevilla, T-R-A-V-I-S-S-E-V-I-L-L-A dot Weebly dot com and kind of see the work some of the students are doing there in terms of the digital art and things like that. They can also email me at T-R-A-V is in Victor, K-A-T-7-5, that's TravCat75 at gmail.com, and I respond to emails. TravCat75 at gmail.com. And if you'd like to know more about Design for Good in the Classroom, a new resource is forthcoming. There's a book coming out called Teachers Teaching Nonviolence. It's going to be published via Cal Poly Pomona's Ahimsa Institute on Nonviolence in K-12 Education. It's slated to come out, I believe year 2020 so I'm posted on my website when it's there but it's a collection of chapters written by educators who were all fellows of the Ahimsa Institute on Nonviolence in K-12 Education which looks at education through a Gandhian lens of Ahimsa. Now Ahimsa was a new word for me prior to our conversation. As explained on Cal Poly Pomona's website Ahimsa is nonviolence rooted in courage and compassion and the goal is to promote lasting peace in society. It should be a really interesting book of people writing about their experiences coming through that program and how they've actually implemented that in their classroom. So it's sort of a handbook for teachers to look at how they can integrate that kind of education in their programs. And it fits right in with their curriculum. And I wrote a chapter about design for good in the classroom. So I'm looking forward to seeing what that looks like. A little bit terrified to see what that looks like in print, but we'll see. Do you have a date when that will be coming out? I don't have the exact publishing dates, but I believe it's mid-year 2020. So probably within the next six months, I would imagine. Just signed the author agreement. So I know we're going to print at some point, so we'll see. Let me know, and I will post it on my website. Do you have time to tell me how you got involved with this particular project? Sure, yeah. Back in 2011, I was teaching at High Tech High, and I was working with a gentleman named Christopher Greenslate, and we were discussing 
opportunities for professional development, things like that, just one day kind of around the cooler. And he said, you know, you'd really benefit from going through this program at Kalapala Pomona. It's called the Ahimsa Institute. And I said, oh, that sounds really cool. It sounds right up my alley. And he's like, you should apply. And he said, every other year they do a summer intensive for two weeks where they bring in about 35 to 50 teachers from all over the country to go through this sort of program and you get graduate coursework credit and it's really intense and it's very cool and I said that seems really neat so I applied and I got to go so I was a 2011 fellow and while I was there that's probably been one of the most kind of transformative informative experiences I've ever had in a short span that radically changed the way I approached teaching. So from that is where I do our daily meditations in my class. We start our classes every day with a couple minute meditation just to kind of get everybody centered and relaxed. And then from there, it's changed the way I approach assessments. It's changed the way I approach how I structure my class in a way to kind of make it the least coercive as possible. How were you different before? Because I'm getting the impression of somebody who loves what he's doing is going to inspire an awful lot of kids in what you're doing. But if I had met you before you went through this particular program, what different impression would I have had? I don't think you had too much of a different impression with regards to who I am as a person. I think it was more as an educator. I was still very much who I am now, but I think I wasn't maybe considering like just how coercive something like grades can be if you're hanging those over people's heads. And it's not that people shouldn't have standards or an aspiration to go to, and it's not that you can't measure people's work. That's not the point. But that little things like that actually kind of force the hand of your students in ways that, you know, it can be very subtle. And and so I was maybe just unaware of those things. So I, I think I was still me and still, you know, I still like the same things I liked. I still want the best for my students and I still cared about my students, but I don't think I was being as articulate with why I was doing what I was doing in certain cases. So I think that would be the biggest shift just having a little more articulation in terms of why I'm doing things. I'm going to do a shameless plug of your work. I love your series about the robots oh, okay. and nature. And I'd like you to tell me a little bit about these. Yeah, so a couple of years ago, I still show as a visual artist in a gallery here and there, and I make independent work you know, here and there. And I was asked to be on the board of a teen nonprofit art program in Escondido, California. And the gallery that offers the nonprofit needed advisory people. So I was like, as a high school teacher and an artist, I was like, oh, I love it. It's going to provide arts mentorship to students that don't have arts programs in their schools. Anyways, we do an annual fundraiser there called the Artathon. And so all the artists who are part of that gallery get invited to come in and for 24 hours straight, they make work. And then that work gets auctioned off and then the proceeds benefit the program. And they had done it a couple times. And then one year, the gallery director said, you know, hey, would you mind you know, being a part of it? Because I'd actually never talked to her about my own artwork. And so I didn't, wasn't there to plug my own work. I was there to just help the kids get you know, access. And I said, sure, I'd love to do that. So you get sponsors, kind of like a jogathon, you know, and you do your thing. And I didn't know what to paint. And I was like, you know, I love like nature and environmental issues. And I just had this idea about these robots that were, because they were robots, had kind of outlived us and then became sort of obsessed with nature and were being enveloped by nature and because they could not die, so they're just staring at the nature you know, indefinitely and watching things grow and things growing in and through them, around them. And so I started painting these little series of like cute little robots with nature and then that kind of just, every year I kept getting invited back and the paintings were selling and so then it just became something that I started to paint a lot. So the last couple of years, like usually when I do paintings, it ends up being some form of these robots and now they've kind of evolved and they're being sort of helped out by nature and there's different scales of the robots and all this stuff. But I like the idea of this kind of a little bit of a cautionary tale about the environment, but also kind of a little bit of a hopeful tale too, that the environment's still here even if we're not. 
So yeah, that's kind of how that started. And I have some background aspirations to make a children's book out of it, but we'll see what happens. <laughs> it's really kind of interesting juxtaposition because they're just what you said, cute little robots. The eyes look almost like a children's illustration that I remember. And then they're about this very dark background. You have a robot holding lavender, if I remember rightly. You have one that's called Big Softy. Really interesting contrast. Yeah, I like that juxtaposition. So just that idea that we create something that sort of surpasses us and then ultimately it's obsessed with the very thing that we kind of squandered in some ways. To me, that's just really interesting. So yeah, I enjoy making those paintings and they're kind of fun to have out there. As a creative who's teaching and having to come up with something new and creating robot pictures and creating all kinds of other cool stuff, how do you manage to keep the creative juices flowing or do you ever hit a dry spell? I think most of my creativity honestly goes into my classroom on the day-to-day, so I don't paint that often because I'm usually kind of exhausted creatively at helping solve other people's problems creatively all day long. But one of the things that I've been kind of blessed with is just kind of a a kind of seemingly limitless well of ideas. So when I get into collaborative groups and things like that, I can usually just start to brainstorm really quickly. And so I don't necessarily lose it, but I get definitely exhausted. So sometimes I just have to recharge by either taking my kids out and going camping or doing Brazilian jiu-jitsu or any of the things that I do to kind of like de-stress and just kind of uh, do something that's physical and out of my head a little bit. So yeah, it's, I don't think I lose it completely, but I definitely get exhausted. So take a break, get away from what you're doing creatively for a while, do something you love with someone you love is what I've just heard. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think more of us would do better to, to do that more often, I would assume. But what would you really love to teach your kids about teaching, art, making and making a difference? My own kids or my students? Well, <laughs> let's, let's ask, take a look at both of those. Yeah. Let's start with your students. I was thinking your sentence, but let's start with yeah. your students. I think it'd actually kind of be the same for both. My wife and I have kind of a very simple rule for our kids, and it's, and it's on our, as you leave our house, there's a little board that has this message, and it just says, try hard and be a good person. And I think, you know, when you distill things down and you get, kind of remove all the different demands on us, I think, like, those are two things that, to me, I'd be happy if any of my kids, whether they're my own biological kids or my students, are doing. You know, if they're putting in, like, a good faith genuine effort to do well in the things that they're doing and that they're genuinely trying to be good people in the world to others and to the environment or to whatever, to me, that would be kind of like the number one or two things that I would want to kind of get them to think about, you know, regardless of their pursuits, whether it's in the arts or design or science or business or anything. That'd be my message to them. (laughs) That's such a great message, too. What would you consider to be one of the most important lessons you yourself have learned about art or about teaching within the last year from what you're doing? Hmm, I don't know about from the last year, but in the last several years, I'd say with regards to art, like not taking things too seriously, it's a little bit of a dichotomy because you know, on the one hand, you want to be serious about stuff and be diligent about the work that you're doing. And I think most good art comes from work, not from inspiration or the inspiration comes from the work. But I think a little bit of lightening up on yourself because I think as artists, whether you're a playwright or whatever, there's this factor of putting your stuff out in the world and then feeling like, you know, it's you that's being judged, you know, if people are looking at it and kind of being able to remove yourself from that equation a little bit. It's a difficult skill, but that's something that I think over the years as I've matured and taught more kids and tried to get them to remove their own hurdles of, you know, insecurity about their work in some ways has actually informed my ability to do that for me. So that's probably one of the biggest things. Yeah. That sounds like a challenge and a half, especially if you're a perfectionist. What's one thing you will tell a student who comes to you and says, 
I really feel bad, this isn't what I want to do, or people don't like what I did, or something like that. How do they get past that hurdle and not take themselves too seriously? I think for me, like when I have students that are struggling in that way, I usually encourage them to try something completely different. You know, like remove themselves from that project altogether and either jump into something else, or kind of in a gentle and positive way, you know, empathize and kind of listen to them and kind of hear them out, ask them some questions. Well, why do you feel that that that's not the case? You know, or why do you think people aren't liking it? What do you think is different? To get them to kind of look at their own work a little more critically and kind of give themselves that 30,000 foot view. And sometimes that kind of opens the doors Then they're kind of, oh, okay, I see what you're saying. And then they can kind of work from there. But I think all artists get those, whether it's writer's block or drawer's block or whatever it is, you know, you're like, I don't know if this is going to work. I don't know if it's worthwhile. And then maybe you put it out there and it's not quite what you envisioned. I think the important thing is as a teacher is having time integrated into the time that you're going to have to do projects so that the students can be iterative and can make those failures and actually get to that hard spot where maybe they've tried and they're like, ah, they're agonizing over two designs or whatever it is. And then kind of going, well, hey, let's look at these. Let's take a break from these. Let's do this other approach and then come back to it and give them the time to actually fix that work and repair that work because I think a lot of times in schools you know we're all short on time we all want to cover all the things and in doing so we actually discourage kids from actually learning or completing or solving a problem because they run out of time and then the points are the points and that's it and they got to move on and I think that actually disincentivizes kids to want to continue to do things that can make the experience of art or design or any subject for that matter a negative one and I think as teachers that's the last thing you want you want kids to enjoy the subject you're teaching just as much as you do I hope I love that phrase 30,000 foot view about distancing yourself and not being perfectionist I don't think you can possibly give me a better answer than try hard and be a good person to my signature question because that's something anybody might want to take away but if people could only get one thing from you about innovation, creativity, and making a difference. In addition to that, what would you really love them to take away from your work in the classroom and as an artist? I think for me, for the educators out there, I think just like really taking away this idea of passion and sort of a, an unceasing desire to kind of improve your practice, your pedagogy, and how you approach problem solving and how you approach your teaching and all that stuff. So I think that would be for me the one thing is to kind of develop a passion to always want to develop further your skill sets in all the ways that that means social emotional pragmatic all of it to help your students and also to make it an entertaining and fun job for yourself because it's a tough job so it's it's nice when you can make it meaningful travis thank you for your time today you're welcome pleasure you and i have been listening to artist designer and arts educator travis sevilla as travis mentioned if you'd like to know more about design for good in the classroom He'd like to hear from you. You can find out more on his teaching website, travissevilla.weebly.com. And when you're there, you'll see a lot of very cool resources and videos. Once again, that's travissevilla.weebly.com. Meanwhile, also check out Travis's artist website. You'll find his new work and his Robots and Nature series on eusebiotravissevilla.com. That's Eusebio, I'll spell it, E-U-S-E-B-I-O, Travis, T-R-A-V-I-S, Sevilla, S-E-V-I-L-L-A, dot com. Eusebio Travis Sevilla, dot com. And that concludes this edition of Over Coffee. Thank you for listening. Listen to more Over Coffee podcasts at twomavericks.com. That's two, T-W-O, Mavericks, M-A-V-E-R-I-X, 
twomavericks.com. And you can contact us at twomavericks at gmail.com. The music you're hearing is royalty-free production music provided by Pond5 at pond5.com. I'm Dot Cannon. Here's wishing you a cappuccino day.